Would you uh, open up, please, to begin with, to John 19. I do want to prepare you to also find Deuteronomy and Joshua and Zechariah. <laughs> I'm giving you a heads up here. We'll be kind of moving around, but Deuteronomy and Joshua, and then later on, not till the end of the lesson, but you will need to find Zechariah. Okay. The you know, many people, when they read through the Gospels you know, or the Passion narrative, as we have been doing, or they study through it, they don't pay a whole lot of attention to some of the seemingly less significant issues with regard to the Lord's after-death matters. Issues regarding his bones, his body, and his burial. They know about them. I'm sure most of you in this room know about them things that we're going to be discussing this morning, but usually they're passed over rather quickly in order to get to the more exciting events that happen on early Sunday morning. What happened on early Sunday morning? The resurrection, of course. However, and I'm sure this is not going to surprise you one single bit, but we're not going to pass over these things quickly. And the reason for that is because the Gospels themselves don't pass over these matters quickly. Um, in fact, all four Gospels tell us about the burial arrangements of Jesus. And that's a significant fact right there. Haven't we found that to be true? Whenever all four Gospels talk about something, that means it's very significant. And they do. And John, who stresses the deity of Jesus Christ, spends 12 whole verses on the matter of the Lord's unbroken bones, his pierced body, and his burial. And I hope to show you this morning, as we look at this first part of our look at the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ, and actually we're not going to get to his burial. That's lesson 183 in your books. I've entitled it the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we're only going to cover this morning the first two parts of the outline. Um, we'll get to the burial arrangements next week, Lord willing. But today's lesson comes exclusively from John and we're going to be looking at divine providence at work in both the protection of the Lord's bones from being broken and also the piercing of his body. You know, when that one Roman soldier pierced through his ribcage and probably right into his heart. We could really subtitle this lesson today something like this. We could subtitle it, The Lord's Body in the Hands of His Enemies. Next week, it will be the Lord's body in the hands of his friends, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. We could also subtitle today's lesson, Treatment of His Dead Body on the Cross. Next week, we could call Treatment of His Dead Body off the cross. So there's all kinds of names for, these, for this one lesson, um, the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at what we're going to cover this morning, verses 31 to 37 of John 19. Now you'll notice that John skips everything that we discussed last time, all about the Roman centurion and that sort of thing, um, and the graves being opened. And he just goes from when the Lord said in verse 30, it is finished, and he bowed his head and he gave up his ghost. And now John jumps in with how the enemies treated his body. It says in verse 31, the Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was an high day, 
besought Pilate that their legs, of course that's talking about the crucifixion victims, that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away, buried. Then came the soldiers and brake the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. Who's him? Jesus. So they broke the legs of the two thieves on either side of the Lord. Verse 33, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bear record, and his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith is true, that he saith true, that ye might believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again, another scripture saith, they shall look upon him whom they pierced. All right, if you'll go and look back at verse 35, that pronoun he, where it says, and he that saw it bear record. Most Bible expositors believe that this is a third person reference that John makes to himself and that he was present as an eyewitness of the handling of the Lord's body while he was on the cross. You say, well, how could he have been there? We know that back in verse 27, after he had been commended to take care of the Lord's mother, Mary, that he had left Golgotha with her and took her, it said, that hour to the place of his residence, wherever he was staying while he was in Jerusalem. So how could he be an eyewitness? Well, Jerusalem's not very big. He could have taken Mary. And remember, that was before the three hours of darkness. So it was before 12 noon. So he could have taken Mary somewhere. And then returned easily, could have returned and have seen these um, the events of the of the last hours and particularly the events that happened after the Lord died. So that's what some believe that John here is referring to himself. Others say that it's also possible that the eyewitness John is speaking of may have been another believer who was there at the crucifixion. Someone whose testimony John, by way of the Holy Spirit, knew was completely trustworthy. Now, what he wrote here in his gospel is 60 years later from when, when these events happened. And so there was plenty of time for John to talk to many of the eyewitnesses, which would include, I got to thinking about, even the Roman centurion. We believe that he was definitely saved. He was there. He had been there the whole time. John would know after 60 years that this man's witness was trustworthy. And so it could have been someone like the Roman centurion, or it could have been John himself. We just don't know. Either way, John assuredly tells us that what he writes is true. And he writes it so that his readers might, what? Believe. That's the reason he's telling us about the bones and the body of the Lord after his death, so that his readers will believe. This is an evangelistic message. Did you ever know studying about unbroken bones and a pierced Side could be evangelistic. Well, it is. It's very evangelistic. And you'll see why, I hope. Now, when these matters concerning the Lord's death occurred, John did not understand them. He, if he was there, he didn't get it. He didn't get it that they didn't break his legs and that a soldier shot a spear up into his side and out issued blood and water. John saw those things, but he didn't understand them with deep spiritual understanding like he did 60 years later after he had time to investigate scriptures and after 
the Holy Spirit had led him all into all truth, as Jesus himself had promised in John 14, 26. And so now he's writing with greatly increased spiritual knowledge, and he says that everything, even the things that happened to the Lord's body after he was dead, fulfilled scripture. And did you notice, as we read through this passage, that it was the Lord's worst enemies? Who were his worst enemies? The Jewish religious rulers. It was them who made the request that the legs of the three crucifixion victims there on Golgotha and Calvary, place of the skull, be broken. They besought Pilate for this. Why? Why? Why did they want the legs of the crucifixion victims broken? Well, for two related reasons on their side, side of the issue, from man's perspective, for two reasons. But there's actually a third divine overriding reason, which we're going to be discussing later on. But the de desire of the Jews was based on God's prohibition about not leaving a body hanging on a tree overnight. So this is where I want you to go to Deuteronomy. All right, Deuteronomy 21, and let's look at verses 22 and 23. This is important. I want you to see it with your own eyes so it sticks in your mind, all right? Deuteronomy 21, 23. This is God, of course, speaking, giving law through his prophet Moses. And God says, if a man have committed a sin worthy of death and he be put to death, I'm skipping some words there, and he be put to death and thou hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree. But thou, sh thou shalt in any wise bury him when? That day. For he that is hanged is accursed of God. Now why were they to take a dead body off of a tree before nightfall? So that the land be not defiled, God says. That thy land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. Now it was rare, but there were two types of circumstances when the Jews, the Jewish people, hung already dead bodies on trees. Make sure you understand, they did not give capital punishment by hanging somebody on a tree, like crucifixion. But there were two types of situations in which they would take someone who had already been put to death and hang their body in disgrace. On a tree. One such occasion, now here's where you flip over to Joshua, okay, Joshua, and look up Joshua 8 to begin with. All right, two occasions. Sometimes, not always, they would do this in the case of war. In Joshua 8 and 9, we find that the Jewish people would display their victory over their enemies by hanging the dead bodies of evil Canaanite kings up on trees. They would hang the tree, the, the uh, king. They already would kill the king of their enemies, enemies of God and enemies of God's people. And to represent those enemies, they would take the king of those people, slay him. How did the Jews perform capital punishment? Three, basically three ways. S the sword, stoning, or strangling, 
They all start with S. The sword strangling, mostly by stoning. So they would put these kings to death first, and then they would hang their bodies up on a tree to display their victory over their enemies. And there's only two cases of them doing this that are recorded in the scripture, and they're both in Joshua. So would you look with me at Joshua 8.29 to begin with? Joshua 8.29. It says, uh, the king, uh, this is about the king of Ai, all right? And the king of Ai, he hanged on a tree. That would be Joshua. Joshua hanged him on a tree until eventide. But first of all, he had been, been slain. He was killed first, and then he hung his body on a tree until eventide. And as soon as the sun was down, Joshua commanded that they should take his carcass down from the tree. And then they cast it at the gate in a pile of bones or bodies or something. But what was Joshua doing there? Taking the body down before sundown because he was obeying obeying Deuteronomy 21 that we just read. All right, here's another case. And if you look at Joshua 10.27... This is the only other recorded case of them doing this in the Old Testament. Joshua 10:27. This has to do with five evil Canaanite kings. If you'll notice in verse 26, Joshua smote them and slew them and then hanged them on five trees. And they were hanging upon the trees until what? The evening. And it came to pass at the time of the sun, going down of the sun that Joshua commanded that they took them that they took them down off of the trees, and then they cast them into a cave, etc. All right, now you can go back to John 19. So, one time when the Jews would hang already dead bodies on trees was in the case of evil kings who represented evil people. All right, to display their victory over their enemies. Also, second case sometimes, but not always. They would hang someone on a tree after having performed capital punishment, after stoning them or strangling them or killing them with a sword. When that particular person, usually if it was a Jewish person, had done something that displayed great disdain of God. And then after that person was put to death, his body was hung up on a tree to demonstrate utter disdain of him by the public display of his disgraced body. Now, I don't read of any cases of this in the Bible. If you can think of one, let me know. I could only think of Judas. (laughs) And he hung himself, didn't he? Isn't that interesting? He hung himself. Um, However, as we just read in Deuteronomy, God did demand that those bodies had to be taken down, you know, hanging there in such an awful spectacle like that. They had to be taken down and not left hanging there through the night. Now, this kind of puzzled the Jews for a long time you know they didn't really do this very often and so they thought well why did God really put this in there it seems kind of strange but the key to understanding the reason for this God-given commandment is in his words God's words that those who were hung up like that hanging on a tree were especially cursed of him therefore their bodies must be buried before the end of the night so that the curse of God on them is buried with that individual. But as seldom as the Jews did this, it just was kind of strange that God put this particular law in effect. So really, the entire thing 
regarding the removal of the accursed ones must have had something to do with the future, something that would be, you know, very important in the future. God isn't whimsical at all. He's not arbitrary. Every law he put in the Bible, every little do this, don't do that, every trivial little thing had significance. And we have learned that, haven't we? So something uh, must going to be accomplished in the future by the death of someone hanging on a tree. Someone especially marked with God's curse. Maybe even a king. Hmm. And the vital necessity of having that person buried quickly, right? Must have something to do with getting that person buried quickly before night ended and burying the curse of God with his body. This obscure command way back in Deuteronomy, so strange and peculiar throughout the Old Testament days, had in view a prophetic symbolizing of the future redemption of the Lord Jesus. And this is made clear to us from the Apostle Paul's words in Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. What did Paul write? He said, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. What is the curse of the law? What it, no, what's the curse of the law? Are we all under the curse of the law? Can any of you fulfill the law? Can anyone fulfill the law? Absolutely not. Therefore, we're sinners. And the wages of sin is death. What is the curse of the law? Death. There you got it. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. And then what did Paul say after that? He quoted from Deuteronomy 21, the verses we just read. For it is written, Paul says, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. So there is your connection to Deuteronomy 21. Christ bore the curse of God for us, for Israel. He's her king, right? It even said so over his head. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. He's also our king. He's really the king of the whole world. He bore the curse of God for us. And in doing so, he died the death of a common criminal, crucified, hanging on a tree. He literally became a curse for us. But after he commended his spirit as a voluntary offering into the hands of his father, the curse of God was actually buried with his body. Praise the Lord! And all of us who believe on him are freed from the curse of the law. And we become heirs of the incorruptible and heavenly blessing. Isn't that wonderful? All God's people said, Amen! Now the other issue, and this is uh, really the stated one by the Jews when they went to request of Pilate to hasten the death um, of the victims and, and, you know, by breaking their legs and thereby getting their bodies off of the crosses and disposed of before nightfall. The reason they give to Pilate is not from Deuteronomy, but it is that at sundown, the next day began. Because at 6 p.m., the Jewish time, you know, the next day would be 
I believe in a Thursday crucifixion. The next day um, would be Friday. And that day, Friday, was a high day Sabbath. And they didn't want bodies hanging on the Sabbath day because that would defile the Sabbath. So there are two things going on. Deuteronomy 21, which they didn't express, but they knew about it to Pilate. Um, They didn't want the bodies hanging because it would defile the land, according to Deuteronomy 21. They didn't want the bodies hanging there on the when the sun went down, because that was going to be a Sabbath, and they didn't want to defile the Sabbath. So those are their two related reasons for wanting Pilate to break the legs of the victims. I don't believe that Jesus died on Friday, as is traditionally observed. And if you question that, we have a cassette tape and we have a lesson on it, etc. But um, I believe he died on Thursday, and... That timing for Thursday crucifixion is required because of what the Lord said in Matthew 12:40. He said, for as Jonas the prophet was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. And there is absolutely no way to get three days and three nights from Friday to Sunday to save your soul. You cannot do it. I know the Jews would count part of a day as a day, so you could get three days, you know, part of Friday, part of uh, all day Saturday, and part of Sunday. But three nights, excuse me, you cannot. You've got Friday night, Saturday night, and by Sunday night, he's out of here. He's arisen. (laughs) So I believe in a Thursday crucifixion, and for other reasons, too. But... um, So you ask me, well, if you have a Thursday crucifixion, then how could Friday be considered a Sabbath? And that's why traditionally they went with a Friday crucifixion, because they said, how could the next day be a Sabbath unless it was Saturday? So it had to be a Friday crucifixion. But what they failed to consider is that, and John explains this to us in verse 31, it was not your typical Jewish Sabbath day Saturday, it was a special kind of a Sabbath. It was a high day Sabbath. Leviticus 23, which tells us all about the seven feasts of Israel, tells us that in connection with the major feasts of Israel, there were high Sabbaths, and God commanded them to be distinguished from the regular weekly Sabbath. So not only did the law of Deuteronomy 21 demand that bodies remain on, not remain on trees throughout the night, but also sundown on this occasion began the high day sabbath associated with not only the eating of the passover lamb but also the first day of the feast of unleavened bread all right think through this thursday is the 14th of nisan according to the jewish calendar we know that the passover was on the 14th of nisan from exodus all right so the next day was the 15th of nisan do you know what that day was It was the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So it was a high day Sabbath. Then what was the next day? Your regular weekly Sabbath. So they had two Sabbaths back to back. And then Sunday was the 17th of Nisan and it was the Feast of First Fruits. Who was the first fruits of the resurrection? Christ and he resurrected. So the Jews go to Pilate. And again, their hypocrisy is so very evident. They have just committed the greatest sin ever committed by man. They have put to death the very Son of God. But here they are all pious about not 
desecrating the Sabbath with his dead body. I mean, they've just killed the Lord of the Sabbath. And they're worried about not defiling the Sabbath. You know, remember way back to the very beginning of this day? It was actually, I don't know how many lessons ago, but it was lesson number 170. And that looks like it's only 13 lessons ago, but you remember we have part A, part B, sometimes part C, so it was quite a while ago. It was way back in Life of Christ, volume 7 somewhere. But at the very beginning of this long day, they had, these Jews, had again evidenced their hypocrisy when they refused to enter into Pilate's residence, lest they defile themselves and they were disqualified from eating the Passover. Remember that? John 18, 28. And they were doing this while at the very same time, it didn't bother them at all that the request they were making of Pilate is that they put to death a completely innocent man. One they had to try to go run out and get, you know, false witnesses to accuse him of something. Well, now at the end of this very same day, they again show their uncanny ability to strain at a gnat while swallowing a camel. That was their specialty. They had that gift. <laughs> they, they want the legs broken on the crucifixion victims to hasten their deaths before the two back-to-back Sabbaths begin. And the corpses, once the victims died, they, uh, they, they thought they would defile both the land and the Sabbaths. Now, this kind of hypocritical rationality, if you think about it, makes a terrible mockery of God. This is what the world loves to look for, doesn't it? In Christians and professing Christians, they love to find hypocrisy because then they just dismiss the whole idea of the gospel message. This is what makes it appear that God, to the watching world, has absolutely no sense of true justice and true holiness. It's superstitious religion that has absolutely no effect on the heart. It doesn't change the person one single bit. It's simply a cloak. It cloaks its evil with outward religious garment. Isn't that what so many do? What religions do? And what professing Christians are great at? You know, when I was growing up, I was not allowed by my church to eat meat or dairy products during Lent on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And, and I, you know, we did that. We obeyed that. But I knew a lot of people, and I was included. And, you know, they would do that. And yet they're running around committing all kinds of other sins, you know. It's like some religions, you know, you can just do about anything. But as long as you go to confession and confess, and then you'll be all right again. That's just, that isn't changing the person inside, is it, at all? It's just religion. It's superstitious religion. Going into Pilate's home, would that have defiled the Jews? Did Jesus care about that? Didn't he talk to the Samaritan woman and anybody and everybody? Did it defile him? I mean, why were they worried about being defiled? They should have been worried about defiling other people with their own evil. They were the worst of all, weren't they? That wasn't a law that you couldn't mingle with the Gentiles. God wanted them to mingle with the Gentiles and tell them about him. The scruples of the Jews, however hypocritical and however superstitious and however unbiblical, they had become, um, however hypocritical they had become, they were in direct conflict with Roman practice. And this is interesting. 
I mean, you know, they, they were basically obeying Deuteronomy 21. The rest of it was all their hypocrisy. But uh, this, was, this conflicted with what the Romans normally did because the Romans prolonged the crucifixion death struggle as long as they could. They, it was not common for them to break the legs of crucifixion victims. They wanted them to hang there as long as it took. And sometimes it would take literally days for someone to die. It was also Roman practice to leave the corpses of the criminals hanging there until nature and ravenous birds and, and uh, beasts of prey had done their thing and all that was left was a skeleton. And then they would take down the body and give it to the family or throw it in a heap. You know, the Jews would take down the bodies and throw the bodies of criminals into a big heap of bones. But that was the, um, the Roman practice because that was part of the shame of the criminals, which the Romans used as a warning to others to obey Rome. Obey the laws of Rome or this is what could happen to you. They did that as an example. But what is interesting is that even though Roman law and practice were against early death and removal of the bodies when it came to crucifixion, even though that was against Roman practice, Pontius Pilate granted the Jews' request, which normally he would not have done. But what day was it? It was the Passover. Multitudes. Millions of Jewish people were in town, and he ran the risk of an uprising if he kept those men hanging in pub public view of the temple, defiling their holy Sabbath. So again, because of the politics of the situation, Pilate consented to not only the breaking of the legs of the victims, but then in taking their bodies down and disposing of them before six o'clock. There may have been a desire in Pilate to hasten the death of the one who had made him so uncomfortable. Don't you think? Don't you think he just wanted to put this whole sticky situation behind him and be done with it? And I got to thinking maybe he also, maybe there was an element of wanting to ease his own guilt by putting Jesus <coughs> excuse me, out of his pain and out of his shame earlier than would be normal and allowing them to dispose of his body. I think there was something of that in going on in his mind, but whatever, <clears throat> whatever the reason for him consenting to the desire of the Jews, it is another example of how some of the most wicked men in the world are the unconscious tools of God Almighty. Who is running the show? God is running the show, and he is using Pilate once again to bring about the fulfillment of Scripture. You know, if it had been left up to Pontius Pilate, he would not have intervened in this situation. He had already washed his hands of it, hadn't he? He would not have intervened, and the three men and then their bodies would have remained on those crosses suspended probably for days if not another week even, or longer, until they were nothing left of them. But that could not happen, and that would not happen. Why? Well, because Jesus had destroyed, said, destroy this temple, 
and in three days I will raise it up. Raise it up. He didn't say I will take it down <laughs> from the cross. Now that would have been pretty spectacular, you know, if it was just a skeleton and he took it down. But that isn't what he said, right? And what else had he said? He said that he would, like Jonah, he would be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, not hanging on a cross. And he would rise on the Feast of First Fruits that Sunday. So, if he was going to rise on the Feast of First Fruits, when did he need to be buried? If he was going to spend three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, he needed to be buried that very night, Thursday night before the sun went down. The timing was predetermined, wasn't it? Pilate could not let those bodies remain there. Now, he would have thought he could have. Remember, he said, don't you know who you're speaking to, Jesus? I have the power to release you or to crucify you. He would have thought that he could have let those bodies remain if he wanted to, but he couldn't have. He couldn't have. Just like he would have thought that he could have rewritten what he wrote on that placard over Jesus' head. When they went to him and they said, don't say that, but say, he said he's the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. Well, guess what, Pilate? You couldn't have rewritten that if you had the biggest magic eraser in the whole world. (laughs) God was in control, not Pilate. Pilate was a puppet, wasn't he? And God not only saw to it that the placard over Jesus' head proclaimed that he, Jesus, was the king of the Jews, but God saw to it that Jesus' body was taken down and buried right on schedule with his foreordained plan. And ironically, the instruments he used to do that were the very men who had clamored for his crucifixion. Those who had tried him illegally and did everything in their power to rid the world of Jesus of Nazareth once and for all. And I know God has a sense of humor, but they were the very people who made possible his timely burial and therefore unwittingly paved the pathway for his resurrection right on schedule. Don't you think God's laughing up there in heaven? It's just, it's just perfect. You know, they didn't break the legs of Jesus, but nonetheless, God got him removed and buried right on time. It's just, it is. Praise God. It's just so amazing. Clearly, this was the work of the providential hand of God. So soldiers came, and likely they were different soldiers sent by Pilate for this mission. Now, I know last week when I read from Dr. D. James Kennedy, his book, uh, we read about Longimus, the traditional name of the Roman centurion. It had him and his men breaking the legs. And he also was the one in that story that did the spear through the Lord's sight. I don't really think that that's true. It makes for a good story, though. But other soldiers probably sent by Pilate did this work. And uh, the reason I say that is because, you'll see in a minute, when they get to Jesus, they're surprised that he's already dead. Would the Roman centurion and the other 12 soldiers be surprised? No, they were there the whole time. They saw him bow his head and dismiss his spirit. And then they said, truly, this was the son of God. They knew he had died. 
So that's why I say these have to be other soldiers sent by Pilate to um, break the legs. And they began by breaking the legs of the two thieves on either side of the Lord. They did them first. I don't know why, um, unless they just started at both ends and were going to work their way to the center. I'm not sure why they did that. But um, I do want to point out, before we go any further with that practice of crucifixure, crucifracture, excuse me, breaking of the legs, I do want to point out that the penitent thief, uh, in his case, the grace of God in pardoning him of his sin, he was forgiven of his sin, wasn't he? Because he did believe that Jesus was Lord. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And he was forgiven and he was born again. Yet the grace of God in pardoning him of his sin did not immunize him against pain and suffering. And and suffering from the justice of human government. He deserved to die. He was a criminal. But we can be sure that God gave him a dying grace. Fact of the matter is that between salvation and heaven, there is a lot of pain, isn't there? Just because we get saved, doesn't that doesn't immune, immunize us against suffering. Because we live in a sin-cursed world, don't we? And we also have to sometimes suffer the consequences of our own poor choices and decisions. And poor choices of those close to us. Because it always has a domino effect. No man is an island unto himself. Somebody else's poor decisions can very well be affecting your life, right? We all know that. Um, but in the end, God is always glorified. Because he keeps his word. The Lord Jesus had said to that penitent thief, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And it was through that awful practice called crucifracture or crucifragium, which was the smashing of the bones beneath the knee, the tibula and the fibula, uh, likely with a mallet, that the Lord's promise was fulfilled to that thief. If the Jews had not required crucifracture, or if Pilate had not granted their request, then the penitent thief would not have died that day. He would have kept hanging there until the sun went down. And he would have died maybe on Friday, maybe on Saturday, maybe he would have lasted as long as till Sunday. And then the Lord's word would have returned void, wouldn't it? Are you getting it? How perfect it all is? He had to die so that Jesus' word would be fulfilled today. While it's still Thursday, thou shalt be with me in paradise. <laughs> it is something. So who's in control even though he's dead? Well, his spirit is still living. His body is dead, but he's still alive. Who's in control? The Lord Jesus. The thief would not have lingered very long after his bones were broken and the I hate to tell you this because it's so awful, but the word for break in the Greek literally means to shatter to pieces his bones below the knee. They would pound the legs with a mallet until they were in splinters and just pieces. It, it just had to be unbelievable pain. The penitent thief went out of this life in a flash 
of excruciating pain. His legs unable to push him up anymore on that little cornu, that sedile, that little footrest below the feet. He wouldn't be able to push himself up anymore in order to exhale his breath, and he would have died within a matter of minutes of asphyxiation. But he opened his eyes in paradise that day and saw Jesus. I think the first one he saw was Jesus. Well, when the soldiers sent from Pilate finished with the two thieves and moved into the center cross, they observed something very unexpected. The one hanging there had not just passed out. Now, that that might have been what they thought when they were working on the two thieves. They might have just glanced over and thought that he had passed out because his head was bowed, you know, and they, they might have thought that. But when they when they got to him, they discovered he was already dead, and that surprised them because it wasn't normal for a man to die so quickly within just six hours. That was not expected. They had been ordered to carry out crucifragium in order to hasten death. They did not expect to find death, but they did. And this is important. Soldiers of that kind did not make mistakes about when a person was dead. They knew death when they saw it. The reason they did not break Jesus' legs, even though that had been given as a commandment from their high-ranking officer, Pilate, yet they disobeyed the command, the reason they didn't break Jesus' legs was because God was in control. But from their perspective, perspective, it was because they were convinced of his death. They were convinced he was dead. And this is very important for you and I to understand because our salvation Our salvation is dependent upon the truth that Jesus truly died, that he was buried, and that he rose again bodily on the third day. That's the gospel message. Our salvation depends upon the truth of that message. So it was the wisdom of God that he provided objective Roman executioners to bear testimony to the fact that, yes, Jesus was dead. And he died exactly as he said he would. He laid down his own life. No man took it from him, as he had said. His death was not brought about by any covert action on the part of man, as was true with the two thieves. You realize that, right? They died because of man's doing. Not only were they crucified, nailed to a tree, but then they broke the bones so they couldn't breathe. But in Jesus' case, he dismissed his own life, didn't he? When it was the predetermined time, he dismissed his spirit. And when all that he had come to earth to do was accomplished, uh, all that he had come to do at his first coming was accomplished, he cried out victoriously, what? You say the words with me. It is finished. And then he bowed his head and he dismissed his own spirit into his father's hands. The Roman centurion and those other soldiers who were with him from the very beginning of the crucifixion had witnessed it all. And in their amazement, they had said, truly this was the son of God. As I pointed out earlier, was is the past tense. They too understood that Jesus had expired. And then when other Roman soldiers sent from Pilate came 
they too bore testimony to the fact that he was already dead. You see what God is doing? Giving us objective witness to the truth of his death. And that's given to us in the fact that they did not break his legs. So this is why his legs weren't broken from man's perspective. But we know that the Lord himself was making sure that his bones were not broken. Psalm 34.20 is a very interesting verse. It says, He keepeth all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Who was keeping his own bones? Jesus. Jesus was keeping them. So how was it that unfriendly hands treated the Lord's body? Well, number one, they did not break his bones, although the Jews requested it and Pilate issued the order for them to do it. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? But then something else took place. One of the soldiers, although not instructed to do so, either by the Jews or by Pilate, one of them took it upon himself to thrust his long spear right into the Lord's side. And the Greek word for side is plura. (laughs) That sounded funny, didn't it? Plura. All of you who are in the medical field, you recognize that word, don't you? It has to do with the the rib cage and the, the lung area, under the rib cage, the heart in there. You know, if you have pleurisy, it's uh, what, the filling up of the lungs. There's pleur, um, what is it called? I had to ask my daughter who's a nurse. Pleural fluid, that word. And I'm, the reason I'm stressing that it was the upper thorax part of his body, and we're going to talk about the heart, um, but the reason I'm mentioning that is because some will say, well, the reason that blood and water came out of him is because the sword went into his bladder and the water that came out was urine. Mm-mm, mm-mm, not according to the Greek. It was the upper part of his body, the, the rib cage area. Apparently, this particular soldier wanted to make, make absolutely positively sure that Jesus was dead. After all, his own life was on the line if it turned out that Jesus really wasn't dead. He'd been commanded to make sure, right? So he wanted to make sure, and so he just took this spear and stuck it right into the Lord's ribcage area. And this, too, should really settle the matter for those skeptics who think that Jesus really did not die on the cross. It's really so ludicrous. It's just absolutely preposterous to think that a whole group of Roman soldiers got it wrong and that somehow Jesus tricked them all into thinking that he was dead when he wasn't. I mean, there he was. His lips probably turned blue because they figure this is about maybe 3.30 or so. So he's been there dead for at least half an hour, maybe 40 minutes. No pulse, no breathing going on, no movement whatsoever. And then he survived a sharp Roman spear pierced right through his chest cavity, likely into his heart, which is why the blood and the water came out. We'll talk about that. Do you think there's people who believe that? Wait till we get to the resurrection and you hear all the theories. It's just incredible. There's one called the swoon theory. (laughs) That he actually wasn't dead when they took him down 
And then they wrapped him, you know, in all this strips of cloth, 100 pounds of spices, and the spices were sticky so that they'd stick to the skin. Now, remember, his skin is full of blood. Well, I'm sure they washed him off. But the spices would stick to the skin. And if you went to pull those cloths off, way worse than a Band-Aid, it would pull the skin off and everything. But somehow, after they took him down and buried him in the tomb and then rolled the stone in front of it, Jesus, in the coolness of the tomb, revived. And he got up. And he unwound himself from all that sticky mess. And then he took that sticky mess, which would be in shreds, by the way, if you tried to pull it off. But somehow he managed to wrap it all back up and make it look like a cocoon, like he had been laying in there, you know, but it was empty. Folded his head napkin, put it there. And then, even though he'd been scourged terribly and hung on a cross for six hours and then had been pierced through the heart with a sword, he managed from the inside of the tomb to roll away that stone and walk out and say, here I am. That takes more faith to believe, doesn't it? Than that he rose from the dead. It really takes more faith to believe that. Oh, but it's incredible. The devil, you know, the devil would love to disprove Jesus' death because it would negate his resurrection. And if there is one thing that the devil hates, it's the resurrection. Because that is what gives substance to our faith. Without the resurrection, we might as well close up and go home, right? What we find, as was true with the non-breaking of the Lord's bones, is that it was the hand of God guiding that particular soldier's thrust. For not only did his action fulfill prophecy, as we'll talk about when we get to Zechariah 12, but also... It verified the Lord's death. Now, in verse 34, we read that when the Lord was pierced through with that Roman spear, a very unusual thing occurred. Blood and water issued out from the body. Now, you know, of course, that there is much water in blood serum, but that the two would be separated like that distinguishable, you know, the blood distinguishable from the water. That was unusual. Have you ever bled? Have you ever been cut and bled blood and water? Oh, look, there comes the blood and there's the water. No, I mean, you bleed bloody water or watery blood, but you don't bleed blood and water. It was, it was weird completely separate and yet flowing out together. And for many centuries, the explanation has been that the spear went right through the pericardium sac uh, surrounding the heart, right up into the heart muscle, and that sac was filled with a clear liquid, which happens when there is great trauma to the heart or the chest cavity. And this is why it is often said that the Lord, his body, now we know he dismissed his own spirit, but that his body died of a broken heart. Wouldn't that be perfect? That the Lord died of a broken heart? And it would literally, literally fulfill Psalm 69.20, which says, reproach has broken my heart. It also emphasizes for us the tremendous mental and spiritual agony of his passion on the cross. A lot of trauma to his heart. 
in all that he went through. And then medically, it could possibly explain the issuance of blood and water from the spear thrust into a dead body. Now, others disagree. Others in the medical scientific field disagree with this hemopericardium idea, saying that it's contrary to evidence with corpses. But the fact of the matter is, the Lord's death was a miracle. It was a miracle. He dismissed his own spirit. Everything about his death had overtones of the supernatural, didn't it? Including here, I believe, the emergence of blood and water. Coming out together and yet separate from his pure side. I think like the vast darkness at noonday and like the, the, the veil that was rent from top to bottom and like the earthquake and the opening of the graves, I believe this too was a miracle. Something very interesting to notice for those of us who are washed by the blood of the lamb. And this is probably going to surprise you, but this is the only mention of blood during the entire time of the Lord's scourging and his crucifixion. Did you know that? I mean, we have been talking for a long time about Jesus's blood. And it began with the scourging, didn't it? Or maybe even when he fell down as he's carrying the... No, that was the scourging came first. Or when they slapped him, I don't know, buffeted him. I'm sure there was blood. We know he was covered with blood. The cross, I mean the crown on his head... Lots and lots and lots of blood. But this is the only mention of blood in the entire crucifixion uh, account in the Gospels. Now, when he was in Gethsemane, remember, he was praying in such agony that he sweat drops of blood. But that was before the crucifixion. Then when he was in the upper room and he was talking to his disciples when he was instituting the Lord's Supper, he said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. But this is the only mention of blood in the whole crucifixion narrative. Therefore, it's very, very precious to us. The blood and the water that poured out of the Lord's side, I believe, was a divine sign of the two great benefits that believers receive in and through the Savior. One is justification, salvation, which is symbolized by the flow of his sinless blood. How are we saved? By the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And the other one is sanctification, which is symbolized by the outflow of the water from him. We are sanctified we are made holy uh, our whole life until we're glorified by the washing of the water of the word also the water symbolizes the holy spirit you know right so the rock had been smitten remember when moses smote the rock what ushered forth water the rock was smitten and the water of life gushed forth and the cleansing blood that makes us whiter than snow. Because of the substitutionary death and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus, the fountain of living water is open for you and I. And the two, blood and water, justification and sanctification, must always go together. 
They're separately distinguishable from one another, but they must always be together. Perfect picture again. And speaking of a perfect picture, think of this one. It was from the side of the sleeping first Adam. Who is Jesus? Second Adam. Okay. Um, and that's according to 1 Corinthians 15, 45. He's called the second Adam. But from the side of, and again, the same word is used for side, except it's in Hebrew. And it speaks of the rib area. From the side of the sleeping first Adam, and the Hebrew word for sleep in Genesis talks about a supernatural sleep, a sleep that actually symbolized death. Out of Adam's side, God took a rib. Out of his side came his bride, Eve. Do you know why Adam named his wife Eve? You know what Eve means? Mother of the living. I mean, she had just brought death. He, you know, through her, he actually brought death, but um, she sinned too. You would think he would call her mother of all the dying. But he believed God, didn't he? That he was going to send through her the seed of the woman. And so he called her mother of the living. That's faith. That's why we know Adam had faith. He believed God's word. And out of Christ's second Adam's side, what ushered forth? What came forth? His bride, the church, the living. Isn't it beautiful? You're going to get more time to develop that in one of your homework questions. But just as she was flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones, we too are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones because he's the head, we're the body. Also perfect. Never ceases to amaze me. Does it ever cease to amaze you? How anyone can deny that this is God's word and just put together by men. If it was put together by men, they were supernatural men. <laughs> God, they were God. <laughs> this wasn't put together by men. This is God's book. Well, as mentioned, John testifies in verse 35 to the truth of what he has written. Why does he absolutely want his readers to know that he is bearing record of the truth? Why? What's his reason? So that we might believe, believe. He's being, as I said, evangelistic here when he speaks of the Lord's bones remaining whole and his side being pierced. So we ask, well, what is there about those two events that is intended to bring faith to people, you know, faith in Christ to people? Seems kind of weird. Like I said at the beginning, most people just kind of sort of pass over the bones and the, and the, the protection of his, uh, or the piercing of his body and get on to the resurrection. But God, uh, John doesn't want us to do that. God doesn't want us to do that. The Holy Spirit doesn't want us to do that because this is an evangelistic message. How does this bring us to faith in who Christ is? Well, John gives us the answer in verses 36 and 37. And this is the heart of it all. Speaking of the heart, this is the heart of the whole thing. When these things happened to the Lord's body, it was fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Even after he is dead. Even after he is hanging there, lifeless scriptures are being fulfilled. And by those who for all practical purposes are his enemies. The first scripture John tells us that was fulfilled, verse 36, concerns of all things Passover lambs. 
He says, for these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him. All of you say that together with me. A bone of him shall not be broken. Hmm. Doesn't that sound like a reference to a person? Reference to a human being? Him? Well, where are those words found in the Old Testament? John says they're a fulfillment of Scripture. Well, those words, where he's getting the Scripture, is from two places, basically. Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, and Numbers 9, 12. And in both of those contexts, it refers to a lamb, an animal lamb. Not a human being, okay? An animal lamb. And not just the daily lambs of the everyday temple sacrifices, but specifically the Passover lambs that were slain once a year and eaten in its entirety by a household between the evenings of the two days. Between the evenings of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. John is quoting... From the command of God that not a bone of a Passover lamb be broken. And he tells us that this command is fulfilled when the Roman soldiers did not break the legs of the Lord Jesus. Now I'm afraid that you and I have lost the wonder and the amazement of all of this. Because there's probably not anyone in this room who hasn't made that connection. We know the Passover lambs were not to have a bone broken. So we, we've known this for years, right? And we've lost the wonder of it. So what I want to do is bring the wonder back, all right? Put your minds into a Jewish mindset. Think as a Jew and ask what is the connection that John is making here. Stop and think about this. Now, when it came to a Passover lamb that was to be prepared and eaten, by a whole household of people. There would be nothing more natural than for that carcass to be divided into pieces in order to be consumed. All right, you're the women. You have cooked the Passover lamb. And you have taken that lamb and you've put it in the middle of the table. And by the way, they had to have the whole lamb there. Like you've ever been to a pig picking and the whole pig is there all right so the whole lamb had to be there because not a bone could be broken so the head is on and the tail is on and the legs are there and it's kind of ew you know you have to look at the whole lamb sitting in front of you well wouldn't it be the most natural thing like we do at thanksgiving with our turkeys to break pieces off of the lamb to serve to the family members who wants a leg okay I mean, isn't that the most common way to serve a lamb or a turkey or any animal? Chicken, you name it. Duck, goose. You break the wings, you break the legs, you break the tail. Who wants the tail? Ooh. When I was in Israel, they actually served the eyeballs Ugh. of the lambs. I guess they, they were to eat the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that, wouldn't that be the most natural thing? Of course it would be. So for years... For years, the rabbis and the Jewish leaders never could adequately explain why they had to do this. You know, a little kid sitting there, Mom, why can't I have the leg? Why do you always have to use a knife and cut me a piece? Why can't I just 
have the whole leg. I'm sorry, son, but this is what God commanded and we must obey. But was God being arbitrary? Was he being whimsical when he gave this uh, commandment? You have, to eat, you, can't, you have to eat the whole lamb, but you can't break any of its bones. Of course he wasn't. And you see, all those years from Exodus, when he gave that command, all those years they were doing that and they never knew why until John 19.36. And God, the Holy Spirit, through John, gives the reason for it. What's the reason? Well, it's to be a sign to prove to you who the true Passover lamb is. Number one, he has to be a male. Not only a male, but he has to be a firstborn male. He has to be without spot or blemish. What does that mean? Perfect. No sin. He must be offered on the 14th of Nisan, Passover day, as a substitute. He must be offered at 3 o'clock when the Passover lambs were being slain in the temple. And now, Israel, here is one more way in which you can identify him. Though his whole body will be consumed in death, yet not a bone of his body will be broken. Even after he's dead. Just think of it. I got to thinking, if he went through everything, fulfilled every single prophecy in the whole Old Testament about his first coming, as we saw when he said it is finished, even up to I thirst, the whole thing, and yet he was dead and they broke his bones, he would have disqualified. So he's in control even after he is dead. You get it? Who fulfilled all these qualifications? Well, let's go back 18 chapters and think about something else that was only revealed to us by John. Back in John 1.29, even before Jesus began his public ministry, John the Baptist went about proclaiming, what? Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. You see, the Baptist understood the typology of the Passover Lamb whose blood was necessary for the angel of death to pass over. He was the, as a lamb led to the slaughter, Isaiah 53. And as a sheep before her shears, he opened not even his mouth. Paul understood this, which is why he could write, Christ our Passover is slain for us. Peter understood this, which is why he could write, For as much as ye know that you were not redeemed by corruptible things, as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb. That was Jesus in the hands of his enemies. Can't you wait till we get to his friends? <laughs> they broke not a bone of his body. And think of this, they were Gentiles. They were Gentiles. They knew nothing about the Jewish Passover command to leave the sacrificial lamb complete and whole. Now, the Jews themselves, they knew about it, but they were the ones who wanted Jesus' legs broken. And yet, in spite of everything those Jews ever tried to do or not do, they were always unsuccessful. Remember, they did not want to kill him on the Passover. Any day but the Passover is what they agreed. But when did they kill him? On the Passover. They wanted his legs to be broken, right? But it was beyond their control. The legs were not broken. The Gentiles disobeyed their commander. Incredible. Again, God's hand, 
His divine providence was at work demonstrating Jesus was the Christ. He is the Christ. He is the Savior. He is the Redeemer. He is the Passover Lamb. No doubt about it. In verse 37, we are told of yet another Old Testament scripture. And if you thought that one was amazing, this one is amazing too. It is a scripture concerning someone else. Here's where I want you to go over to Zechariah. All right. Zechariah 12, please. This is a chapter that is concerning someone else, but not really. Okay? Someone else, but not really. John said, they shall look upon him whom they pierced. Everybody say that with me. They shall look upon him whom they pierced. Now, Zechariah 12, this is an eschatological passage, which means it has to do with end times things. End times things that aren't even here yet today. Still future. And the primary actor in this passage is the Lord God Almighty. And he speaks of what he is going to do on that day when Jerusalem is surrounded by her enemies. Hmm. Sounds pretty much like today, when she's surrounded by international armies that have come up against her. He says in verse 2 that Jerusalem is going to be a cup of trembling. Does that city make the world tremble? Oh yeah. Hardly a day goes by, you don't turn on the news, and what are they talking about? What's going on in Israel? It's a cup of trembling. In verse 3, he calls it a burdensome stone. He's going to make that city, and already has, a burdensome stone to the nations of this world. People are going to be burdened by that city. And all who burden themselves with it are going to be hacked to pieces. Those who do not like Israel and Jerusalem one day are going to face the judgment of God. Why? Is it because that nation is so wonderful? And that nation is so powerful? No. It's because God is going to protect her. That nation is the apple of his eye. Don't fear for Israel. Now, I pray for Israel. And I pray that our nation will never turn her back on Israel, which I'm afraid is beginning to happen. And we need to pray that we won't. But... Don't fear for her because the hand of Almighty God is at work. He is not yet finished with Israel. No matter what is being taught in many churches, he is not finished with Israel. Because the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. He is going to yet bring those people to himself. Verse 10. Now this is where we want to look at. This is what John is talking about. God is going to pour out a spirit that will bring these people, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, to supplicate him. And that spirit is the spirit of grace. After she will have gone through seven years of the tribulation, when two-thirds of Israel will be wiped out, the people of Israel will be finally turned back and start supplicating God, praying to God. And he is going to pour out on them the spirit of grace. He's going to do for them exactly what he has done for you and I. Aren't you glad he's poured out the spirit of grace in your life and did something supernatural with you? Well, he's going to do the same with Israel. 
What's going to happen? At the end of verse 10, now notice this. What did John say? They shall look, everybody say it, they shall look upon him whom they pierce. And he's telling us this is the fulfillment of Zechariah 12.10. What does Zechariah 12.10 say? And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Me. Who is the primary actor in Zechariah 12? God Almighty. Him is me. Me is him. The him that John says that they shall look upon is me, the Lord God Almighty. That's what Zechariah 12 tells us. And this has upset the Jew, the Hebrew scholars, the, the Jewish people who, not all of them, but most of them, do not believe that Jesus is their Messiah. And when they see Zechariah 12.10, over the centuries, they've had a fit. So 24 of the Hebrew, Hebrew manuscripts, they have changed the words here to read that they shall look upon me whom they have despised instead of whom they have pierced. Why have they done that? Why do they have difficulty with Zechariah 12.10? Well, because the only way that people can be guilty of having pierced the Lord God Almighty is if he took upon himself flesh. Isn't that incredible? They can't have God becoming flesh because that points to Jesus, doesn't it? And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The Passover lamb at one and the same time is the Lord God. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. You see, when they pierced God, they pierced God's son. And when they pierced God's son, they pierced God. Isn't that amazing? Do you remember what Abraham said to Isaac? Genesis 22.8. He said, God will provide himself a lamb for the offering. And that's exactly what he did. He provided himself. Well, when Israel at long, will, at long last will realize that truth, that she pierced God and his son, her Messiah, her cry is going to be so deep and the land so smitten with mourning and her repentance will be so real that God will do something. What? Well, look at chapter 13, verse 1. He will open a fountain for sin and uncleanness. You know, that will be an outflow of blood for sin, you know, the remission of sin. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And water, how will they be made clean? By the washing of the water of the word. And the water is the Holy Spirit also. He's going to open a fountain of sin for sin and uncleanness to the house of David. Finally, what flowed out of the heart of her Messiah 
will cover her sins, will atone for her sins. And as it says in Romans 11.26, all Israel shall be saved. You know what? She will be called by his name. Israel will be a Christian nation. And the reason I'm weeping is because I love the Jewish people. I do. I love them. Isn't it amazing, these two things that normally, you know, you can pass over pretty quickly. The preservation of Jesus' bones. That takes us all the way back to the past, doesn't it? Almost to Genesis. It takes us all the way back to Exodus, second book in the Bible, to the fulfillment of the original Passover lamb and that all, all that that lamb signified about the coming redemption by the blood of the Passover lamb. And then the piercing of the Lord's side takes us all the way to the future, to the second coming, when she will, Israel will look upon him, me, whom they have pierced. And not only Israel, but guess what? Revelation 1-7 says that all the nations will see him and mourn and weep. Isn't that incredible? One, the bones to the past. The second, the piercing of the side to the future. And in the middle is the crucifixion. And it covers it all. I got to thinking about the very first and the very last thing that they did to the Lord's body in the crucifixion scenario. What was the first thing they did? They pierced his hands and feet. They pierced him. Wrists and his feet. What was the last thing they did to him? They pierced his side. And in the middle of that, they pierced his brow with the crown of thorns. And as I was thinking about that, I thought, if you, and I made a picture yesterday for the ladies, I think this helped, because we have a board up there and I can draw pictures. But if you picture where there was blood, where they pierced him, it'd be on his head, his heart, his feet, his two wrists. You have a cross of blood without the cross, don't you? And do you know how many places that is? One, two, three, four, five. What's the number of grace in the Bible? Five. Was that not grace? Mm. Mm -mm -mm. There's no end. No end to the magnificence of God's word and God's truth, is there?